0: Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Oh Masato tamaso maham jotir gamaya. Rityur amritam gamaya. Avir, avir maedhi. Rudra yate dakshinam mukha Tena Pahini Om, lead us from the unreal to the real, lead us from darkness unto light, lead us from death to immortality, and reach us through and through ourselves, and evermore protect us from ignorance by thy sweet, compassionate face. So, my subject this morning is practical Vedanta. And we're going to be talking about monistic worship, about worship of the man God, about worship of God in every man. It's kind of a new kind of spiritual practice, which is based on the doctrine the fundamental teaching doctrine of this vedanta philosophy that is the divinity of man when we think of the word use the word divinity we are used to think of a monotheistic god in heaven a supernatural omniscient omnipotent magical being who lives up in the sky and uh, is completely, is the creator of this world, and yet is completely different from man and his creation. Vedanta gives us a whole new conception of God. In Sanskrit, God is called Ishwara. Ishwara is... Impersonal and personal. He is transcendent and imminent. Ishwara is the universal spirit. Ishwara is the God in everything. And the goal and purpose of spiritual life is to see and to realize God in everything. Now, when we, when we use the word everything, well... God is, that, that's a big word, and uh, therefore if you can't see, the ideal is if you can't see God in everything, the saints and sages uh, instruct us, to, therefore better to try to see God in one thing. See God in that thing in which God is most manifest, that is in the form, that is in the human form, in the man form. Everywhere God is in everything, just as water is everywhere on the earth. But if we want to get a drink of water, the best place would be to go to a pond or a lake or a well. Similar it is with our worship of God or our seeing God in everything. The easiest place, the most natural and reasonable place to see God is in the mind and the heart of man. Shri, I'll quote to you from Sri Ramakrishna here, the saint of Dakshineshwar. We cannot imagine a God higher than man himself. And if we are to worship God, therefore, we're bound to worship him in man and as man. Now, when we think of worship, we ordinarily think of the ritualistic for the formal ritualistic worship of uh, a graven image or a representation of God in a temple, a church, or a shrine. And we can visualize the traditional Sunday service in a church or in our temple where the priest or the priestess or the, the pujari will conduct an elaborate, systematic, methodical uh, Worship of God, being uh, uh, adhering very closely to uh, detailed instructions given in, in, uh, in the Sanskrit literature and the offering of the waving of the incense and the chanting of the Sanskrit mantras and the offering of the fruits and flowers. But, um, it's difficult for us, therefore, to, when it, with that traditional idea in our mindset, that's our model, mental model of what worship is. It's, tradi- it's difficult for us to think, how then would we worship every man? How would we worship living, walking, ordinary people everywhere around us? That's a kind of our question that we can begin with this morning. How to worship God in man. I think last lecture we discussed in great detail, like I gave the subject last time, my subject was how to see God in everything. And remember on that occasion we discussed in some detail the inward subjective mental practice that is involved in in seeing God in everything. And we talked here, we talked about Changing your your mind and your heart, and when visualization and the use of the pratika and the pratima, but it was all about changing our our inner our inner vision. And uh, this morning we're kind of continuing where we left off. Now we're going to talk about the outward behavior that goes with that, because if you can if you in fact can see God in everything, which is part of the practice. We're not really discussing that this morning. You have to go back to the other lecture. Well, if you really see God, if you accept this doctrine that God is in every man, if you see God in everything, the natural feeling response when you're in the presence of God is to worship and to serve. And so our question is, what is the, uh, what is the practical, uh, appropriate form of worship, worshiping every man when, we can't, when we're not in a shrine, when we, when we don't have incense and remembering our Sanskrit mantras. Well, let's try to think that through just a little bit. Kind of pushing the edge of the envelope here because we're, we're, we're talking about a whole new idea of God. And we're talking about a whole new idea of worship. Now we talk here about worshiping the man-god, um, well, maybe the first thing that would come to your mind is just as an example, a free association, where we know that in all religions they talk about the veneration of saints. And certainly when we go to, when we go to India, when we read the lives of the saints and of Indian saints and sages, we know that it is a long tradition in, uh, in ancient India to uh, pay great reverence and uh, even worship. Of saints and holy men. And uh, devotees pay their respects. They don't just say hello. They, they, they salute with their hands. They bow down on their knees. They uh, offer the, the, the holy man some, some gifts or some prasad. And uh, often they treat that holy man almost as if he is like an image in the shrine. And maybe you remember, if you read in the life of Ramana Maharshi, the saint of Tiruvannamalai, you remember on one occasion, this was in the cold winter months, some devotees came to visit the Maharshi. He was not in the rooms of the ashrama, rather he was in a cave on the Arunachala hills. So they went up to that cave Went into the cave, and there they saw him in deep meditation, oblivious of the sounds and of any any um, visitors. And they came in. What did they do? There they are in the presence of the holy man. They knelt down. They began to recite Sanskrit mantras. They, they lit incense. Several ladies put garlands around his neck. And then one devotee cracked open a coconut. And taking that coconut, this is a traditional way of worshiping the shrine, right? They crack open the coconut and taking that coconut milk, poured it over his head. So it's kind of, and uh, we can see that uh, this is not what we mean when we're talking this morning about worship of the man god. This is not what we mean uh, by our subject this morning of practical Vedanta. And the worship of the man-god, by the way, I'm translating a Sanskrit term here. It's called Nara Narayana, which means literally man-god. The worship of man as God. And this worship of Nara, Narayana, is a completely different thing. Uh, I'm just trying to share with you a little bit before we actually get into the substance of this. i to just trying to share with you my thought process of what they're talking about. So we see that's not, we cross that off the list, and uh, we're talking here about how then could you worship a human being, a human person, a person, uh, as God? I remember that once I attended a worship service, it was in the month of October, it's called in India, it's called the Kumari Puja. Now this Kumari Puja, the Kumari in Sanskrit means a young girl. Okay, now maybe she's 12 years old. And the young girl is part of the whole liturgical season of Durga Puja. The young girl, the Kumari, on that occasion is chosen, a special, they choose one girl, and she is made into the goddess. She's decked here in these expensive Banarsi silk, golden sari, and she has she's put of jewels and crown on her head, and then she is uh, set up on a dais, which becomes a shrine. And then priests come in, and the priests begin to worship the girl. And we hear all this uh, the Sanskrit mantras and the waving of the incense and the offering of the fruits and the flowers. It seems like when I first saw that, I thought, this is a, maybe this is an example of monistic worship. How different it is from the worship of the ten armed goddess made of of clay in the temple. Here, Here we have a living human person that's being worshiped. But later on, talking to one of the priests, I found out that his idea was different. It wasn't that the Kumari was a being to be worshipped, but it was the goddess Durga who was being worshipped through the form of the Kumari. The Kumari was functioning as a medium for this otherworldly goddess that the girl herself was considered to be unimportant rather it was the it was the awakening of the divinity that possessed the girl that was being worshipped now this kumari puja is a is a good example of a traditional kind of worship but we can see well, there are 10,000, maybe, maybe 20,000 people in attendance. It happens very rarely. Certainly it wouldn't be practical for you or I to conduct such a worship. And we can see that this can't be what we mean here by practical Vedanta. My subject is practical Vedanta. Four lectures given by Swami Vivekananda, who is the founder of this society, Four lectures given 1896 in London, in which he discussed the subject which we are discussing this morning, that is the worship of man as God. And he talked there about the service of man, the worship of the Spirit in every man by means of the from the spirit within ourselves in sanskrit they use the, they use the phrase the worship of jiva as shiva jiva means you're, the individual person as shiva who's god the worship of the individual as the universal the worship of man as god the worship of nara as narayana and in those lectures swami vivekananda well, we can see that worship takes on a whole new form there. In, in learning about Vedanta, we see that Vedanta gives us a whole new conception of God as man, and a whole new, different conception of what is worship. And maybe it will be good for us here. Try. Let's try to understand what we mean here. What this worship of every man would look like, and. uh Well, we certainly don't need to know Sanskrit. We certainly don't need all of the appurtenances of a ritualistic worship. We don't need a graven image or a picture. We have a living, breathing human being who stands before us. It's not some invisible, mythological god in the sky. It's a real, living, conscious person who stands before us. How then would we worship? Well, Vedanta takes a very practical, common-sense approach to, uh, I mean, in this regard. And we need only to remember in this regard that worship is service. Now, we can set aside our idea of the Sunday service or of the traditional, formal, ritualistic service. But we can keep the word service. Let's look here at the word service. You go to a service station. Well, not anymore. But if you (laughs) used to be, you'd go to a service station and you get some service. And uh, the attendant would uh, pump the gas and would would clean the windshield. Uh, If you go to a restaurant, the waiter will serve you. Similarly, we can serve God in man. God appears before us in many different forms. God appears before us as the illiterate person, as the hungry person, as the homeless person. And if God were to appear before us as an illiterate man, then uh, an illiterate person, what does he need? He needs education. How best can we serve him? Well, we give him education. Remember, the natural the natural feeling response when you're in the presence of, of a divine being is the impulse from within yourself. You don't think, oh, gee, what should I? Your, your the natural impulse is to worship and to serve. The question is, how is the best, what's the most appropriate way to do it? Now, if God appears before us in the form of a sick man, well, he needs some medicine. And therefore, the most natural and appropriate way to serve, that is, to worship God in that form, would be to give him some medicine. If God appears before us in the form of a hungry man, well, he needs food. And the natural, appropriate way to serve God in that form would be to give him food. Now, you may say that this is nothing new. You may say um, this is just what we all know. And this is what we call humanitarian service. This is just Christian charity. And uh, it's true. In their outward behavior, humanitarian service and the worship of God in man appear to be the same. But in their philosophical and psychological mindset they're radically different and there's a world of difference in the background philosophy. There's a world of difference in the intentionality of the worshiper. And uh, I will quote to you from Swami Virajananda who was a one-time president of the Ramakrishna and mission, that is, of this monastic lineage of which this Vedanta is a part. I'm going to quote to you from him. From him, I don't quote very often, but uh, everything, everything I say, I just prefer to put it in my own words. It just makes it easier for me to, to talk about it. I'm going to quote to you, though, verbatim here from the Swami Virajananda. This doctrine of service, of Nara Narayana, of man as God, initiated by Swami Vivekananda, that is the founder of this society, this lineage, is an entirely new thing. It's radically different from the social service done by the volunteers of the Salvation Army. It is radically different from the humanitarian service performed by the bhikkhus of the Buddhist period and conducted by the Roman Catholic monks of the Middle Ages. Let's look a little bit about humanitarian service. Let's look at that. Try to understand why he says that. Humanitarian service is all about humanism. And uh, secular humanism, we can say, is the default religion of America. The humanists serve man and work for the welfare of man as man. They're interested in the physical man, in the psychological man, in the social animal. But humanism, by definition, rejects the idea that there is some transcendental, transpersonal, divine spirit soul in man. Humanism is all about man as man. Whereas Vedanta, the whole focus and attention is on the the transpersonal, the metaphysical, the self, the atman, the soul in the other. And the teaching of Vedanta is, is that there's a real and there's an apparent man, the apparent man is the person that we, the man as man. The real man is the spiritual, the soul, the self, the Atman within. And that is the focus of our service, of our worship, of our love. That's what divine love means. Divine love means love of the spirit, love of the soul. We have to have the discrimination to look past the apparent man and to um, focus our attention upon the spiritual man—that is, upon the soul. Let's consider an example. Now, let's say that you met a panhandler on the street. Maybe you don't see them here in Santa Barbara. These are all they only see in Los Angeles. <laughs> let's say that you met a panhandler on the street. At that time, at that moment, it's very likely that you would uh, look at that person. You would feel a a, a a sense of moral obligation. You would feel that you really should help that person. You would likely also feel sympathy. You would, uh, maybe you would feel some empathy. And uh, maybe you would feel moved by compassion to actually reach into your pocket and to give him a dollar. And once you've done that, you will feel good about yourself. And you will feel, if you think back about it, you'll feel like, yes, I have done my Christian duty. Yes, I have uh, practiced a little Christian charity. I have, uh, for a moment at least, I was a good Samaritan. And I did a good work. You may think like that. The fact is, is that what you have done, of course, is much, much better than uh, being cold and callous and unfeeling and uncaring and indifferent to others. What you did is much better than that. The doing of that good work will make you a good or a better person, but doing good works will not make you a saint. Doing good works will not transform you into a spiritually enlightened being. And remember, as students of—that's of, our our goal in life—it's a personal growth and self transformation. We're not just interested in getting, being better and better people. We're interested in complete self transformation. That means we want to become a saint, or a sage, or a mystic, or a or, or, or brahmagyani, or an atmagyani. That's our goal. Good works won't do it. In order to become a saint, you need to do sadhana you need to do spiritual practice. In order to become a saint, you have to worship God. I'll use the word example of a saint. In order to become a saint, you have to be in a relationship, not with another person, but with God. It's that relationship, that connection that will make you, will be transformative. Now let's consider a little different scenario. Let's assume that you are a spiritual aspirant and you are trying to see God in everything. You're trying to practice a little what we're calling here practical, this is what Swami Vivekananda called practical Vedanta. You're going to try to practice this. You're going to try to see you've already done your inner catechism, as we discussed in a previous lecture. You've prepared your mind and heart. Now you have encountered a real human being and now you, what is your behavior? You're going to try to behave and act in accord with your, consistent with your beliefs. Your belief is that this is a divine immortal soul. This is a God being. This is a, a, a man God who stands before you. So the person comes before you. And at that time, you hand him a dollar. So you can say the action, let's say the action is being photographed by a a third person would have seen that your behavior and the behavior of the humanitarian, which is exactly the same. In fact, a mechanical robot could have done the same thing. Handing food to a hungry man can be done by by a mechanical man. What makes it into a good work or a spiritual practice is the intentionality. It's the intention in action. It is the the condition of satisfaction is different. The difference between the two, the two actions, is that one has a completely different mindset. The whole foundation of the behavior is radically different the intention of the humanitarian is to help the intention of the spiritual uh, practitioner is not to help it's to serve and the humanitarian helps man as man and the vedantin endeavors to serve man as god let's look here about a little bit about the word compassion give you a little controversial point of view here. The worship of God in man is different from the New Age American Buddhist practice of compassion. I don't know how many of you here are New Age people, but whatever. This is a, We're talking about the New Age American Buddhist practice of compassion. And... Uh, what is compassion? Well, sympathy is a feeling of pity. And compassion is when pity is moved to action. That's called compassion. I know how you feel. That's sympathy. You know, I feel how you feel. That's empathy. I actually take action to do something for you. That's compassion. The problem with such ordinary compassion, and we're not talking here about the compassion of the Lord Buddha in ancient India. We're talking here about New Age American Buddhist hippie compassion in that terms. The problem with such compassion, in air quotes, is that, well, for one thing, it evokes political emotions. Immediately when we feel compassion for the poor and the downtrodden, we feel we have a feeling of love for the oppressed, and what's the opposite flip side of the coin? Hatred for the oppressor. Those two go together. love and hate. Another problem with such compassion is that it presupposes an in a superior, inferior relationship. Think about it. I am going to help you. The whole presupposition is that I'm higher, that you're lower. That I am reaching down to you in order to lift you up, up. You know how you would feel if somebody were to say to you, I pity you. I feel compassion for you. I'll pray for you. (laughs) It doesn't make you feel very good. It doesn't make you feel very good about yourself. That's because by that very act you're kind of put in a lower position. Let me read to you, I'll read to you a quotation from Sri Ramakrishna. I'm going to read to you the words here from Sri Ramakrishna, the saint of Dakshineshwar, who is the founder of this lineage. Sri Ramakrishna says there in the gospel, if you can read about it in the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, someone, one of the devotees, mentioned how we need to show compassion. Sri Ramakrishna says, uh, Compassion for all beings? How foolish to speak of compassion. Human beings are as insignificant as worms crawling on the earth, and they are to show compassion to others? That's absurd. It must not be compassion, but service to all. Recognize all as manifestations of God, and serve them as such. In the, in India, there uh, the Ramakrishna Math and Mission, of which this is a part, is a it's it is the largest social service organization in India, the largest monastic order in India, and it is sometimes referred to as. Uh, the Salvation Army, to India's distressed. It's sometimes referred to as India's National Fire Department because the monks of the Ramakrishna order are dedicated to worship and to serve whenever there's a natural disaster, of which there are many, floods, hurricanes, and uh, famine, and drought. Invariably, the monks of the Ramakrishna order will organize to help and to serve the poor and the suffering of that natural uh, catastrophe. But of course, all of that service, all all of that is done in the spirit of the service of God in man. In America, too, this Vedanta society which is part of the Ramakrishna Matan mission, we also serve God in man. Of course, there are different kinds of service. Service of the body, the mind, and of the spirit. In America, the service of the Vedanta society and the members of this society, our emphasis is not on disaster relief, service in that, in that context. Our emphasis is not on the housing, uh, the housing of the homeless or the feeding of the poor or the nursing of the sick. That's because in America, there is a whole organized army of humanitarians who do that kind of work. Not only do they do that work here in America, but whenever there is a natural disaster in the world, Who is it that responds? America. The food, help service is immediately uh, that humanitarian service comes from the United States of America. The acute need of America is not food and shelter and not education, but spirituality. And uh, somehow we have fallen into a spiritual, philosophical bankruptcy. And when we talk here about the poor and the suffering, well, there's different kinds of poverty. There's different kinds of suffering. And there is such a thing as spiritual poverty. There's such a thing as spiritual suffering, of inner turmoil, of a sense of loss of direction. Everyone in America, or in the Western world, hungers and thirsts, for a new philosophy, for a new religion. The ministry of this Vedanta society is to serve that need by promoting the teaching, practice, and study, and the practice of the Vedanta philosophy, which we believe will be the new philosophy that we need. We need a new philosophy and a new religion. See, for thousands of years, we have been worshiping an invisible, supernatural, magical person up in the sky. A being who is completely apart from man and from the creation. And we worship that being with hands clasped, like in the the paintings you see of the Christian saints, their eyes looking, hands are clasped, their eyes are looking up into the sky. Like that psychologically, we've been worshiping that invisible man of the sky for thousands of years. Worshiping, uh, worshiping him with mantras and with formal rites and rituals and offerings. And uh, what's been the payoff? The world is still a mess. We're still suffering. We need a new religion. We need a new form of spiritual practice. We need uh, to forget about that supernatural, mythological person who is apart from ourselves, who's apart from the world, and we need to redefine and reconceptualize our idea of God, as taught by the Vedanta philosophy, Discover the God within us. Discover the uh, God in everything. And uh, the challenge of Vedanta is that we recognize the divinity of man. And that we begin to worship and to serve. Om Dyo Shantihi, Antariksha Mshantihi Pretty Vishantihi, Apa Shantihi, O Shadaya Shanti Vanas Pataya Shantihi, Vishwe Deva Shantihi, Brahma Shantihi, Saravam Shanti Shantire Deva Shantihi, Sa me shanti raid hi om shanti 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 Om peace is in heaven, peace is on the earth, peace is in the sky and in the waters. The herbs and plants and trees are full of peace. The gods are peaceful. May this eternal universal peace enter our souls and beings. Om peace, peace, peace be unto us all. You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.